So I see online um, that you are, looks like you're nearing the end, or you've recently completed a like 10-part series in 1 Corinthians 15, um, which is awesome. I assume that that is in preparation for Easter Sunday, which is uh, intentional and wonderful. We're, we're headed there, aren't we? Both on the calendar and in life. We're headed toward the resurrection. Praise the Lord for that. Beginning today, however, the Sunday before Jesus rose from the dead, um, the days and the details of the final week of Jesus' earthly life unfolded with such meaning and significance and, and symbolism that the calendar itself calls us, doesn't it, not to rush toward Good Friday and Easter Sunday without first slowing down to see and to praise what else God was doing on the way to securing our redemption in the death and resurrection of his son. So it's Palm Sunday today. It's the day, like our brother said, that we set aside each year to commemorate what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem under the shouts of Hosanna from the people and over a bed of palm branches and clothing. It's the day of Jesus revealing himself as Israel's Messiah, King, to the masses of people that were gathered in Jerusalem for Passover, where Jesus would lay down his life a few days later as the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. So my plan this morning is pretty simple. I'm going to tell the story. I'm going to show the significance, and we're going to make some applications. That's all. Let's begin with the story. All four gospel writers tell it. I chose Luke's account, but we're not going to limit ourselves to Luke's account this morning. Um, but I chose verses 28 through 40 because that is the gist of the triumphal entry. In order to tell the story of Jesus' triumphal entry, entry rightly, however, we do have to look back well beyond verse 28 and look forward well beyond verse 40. So notice how our text begins. Verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So if you're, if you're reading carefully, already into the text, two questions are demanded of the text. They're not necessarily urgent questions, but they're questions. First, what things did Jesus say before he resumed his journey to Jerusalem? And second, where was he at the time? Because the text reads as though he's mid-journey, doesn't it? From somewhere to Jerusalem. Now, again, these are not urgent details, but we kind of drop into something that's already in motion in the text. So to be able to answer those simple questions that the text itself is calling for is just going to help us understand the story better and consequently help us tell the story better. Here's, here's what I found interesting as I sought to answer those questions for myself. You have to go all the way back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 to answer the second question. In other words, you have to go back 10 chapters to find the starting point of this decisive turn toward Jerusalem. Listen to the verse. This is, this is Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So we think Capernaum at the time. That's 80 miles, 
from Jerusalem. A few days before this, Jesus had taken Peter and James and John up a mountain to pray. It was there that Moses and Elijah appeared and literally spoke of Jesus. The word is his exodus, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's verses 28 through 36 of Luke 9. And 15 verses later, the Bible says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, meaning when the days drew near for what Moses and Elijah spoke to Jesus about, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, where everything they talked to him about would unfold. To set one's face towards something is very carefully chosen language in Scripture that communicates resolve, like when Jacob tricked Laban and fled, setting his face toward the hill country of Gilead, or when God himself announces through Jeremiah the prophet to King Zedekiah that he will turn back the weapons of war that are in his hand against Babylon, and he will fight against Zedekiah and Jerusalem himself in anger and fury because he has set his face against the city for harm and not for good. It doesn't mean a simple turning. It means resolve. Jesus knows what lies ahead for him in Jerusalem. He heard it from Moses and Elijah a few days prior, and he knew it from before the foundation of the world. And just as the fullness of time came for Jesus as the eternal Son to take on flesh in his incarnation, so the fullness of time had now come for Jesus' exaltation. As the text says, his being taken up. It's the language of ascension, which implies a death and a resurrection. And as the days unfold between Luke 9 and Luke 19, Jesus will more explicitly and even more frequently begin to speak to the disciples of his coming sufferings and death and resurrection from the dead. So Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, and he leaves Capernaum in chapter 9, and 10 chapters later in our text, in chapter 19, he still hasn't arrived in Jerusalem. Along the way, Jesus is healed and preached and detoured and taught, and Luke has dropped reminders every few chapters that Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. His face is still set toward Jerusalem. He does this, in case you're curious, in chapter 13, verse 22. He does it again in chapter 17, verse 11. Jesus himself drops the reminder to the disciples in chapter 18, verse 31, and in his most explicit foretelling there of his coming arrest and suffering and death and resurrection. So just before Jesus enters the city, a few incredibly significant things happen along the way. And these significant things provide an immediate backdrop for what the triumphal entry is. First, at the end of chapter 18, in Jericho, this is 15 miles from Jerusalem, blind Bartimaeus is sitting by the roadside, 
crying out for mercy to Jesus, the son of David. And as others on the scene rebuke him as they walk by, Jesus stops and Jesus calls him near. And Jesus says just a single word and immediately blind Bartimaeus sees and follows and glorifies God. And the people join in praise. And that episode informs the second episode and even the more significant episode in the backdrop of the triumphal entry. Ironically, even though Luke has the longest and most detailed account of Jesus' face set toward Jerusalem and everything that happened along the way, ironically, Luke doesn't record this particular episode that I think is the most significant episode in the backdrop of the triumphal entry. More ironically, neither does Matthew, neither does Mark. Only John does. John chapter 11. It happens in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. Mary and Martha send for Jesus to inform him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus responds, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But then he dies. Not Jesus, Lazarus. Lazarus dies, and Jesus says to the, to the disciples, I am glad for your sake that I was not there, so that you may believe. So the Son will be glorified through this, and you will believe through this. By the time they arrive, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. Martha runs to Jesus confused, even a bit hurt. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Not only in the resurrection, but in me by faith, because I am the resurrection and the life, and Mary believes. Martha comes to him next. She's weeping. She says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus is so deeply moved and so greatly troubled, even though he knows what he's about to do, that he begins to weep as well. He's weeping at their suffering and their grief. He's weeping at the reality of death, even though he knows he's about to explode from the grave and conquer death. And the Jews are whispering in the background, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind, in other words, blind Bartimaeus, Luke 18, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And what does Jesus do? On the scene, he does even more. He doesn't keep him from dying. He raises him from the dead. Lazarus, come out. And he comes out of the tomb, and many believe. And the Pharisees and the chief priests, led by Caiaphas, <laughs> accidental but spot-on prophecy, set their faces to put Jesus to death. And Jesus withdraws. No longer to walk openly among the Jews until the triumphal entry. So let's go to the day. Sunday morning. Jesus leaves Bethany with his disciples again, two miles. They travel to one of the hardest words to say in the Bible. I watched two YouTube videos on it this morning and have a little Bible app that pronounces words and, and everybody still says it differently. Beth, how did you, how did you say it this morning? That consistent with the guy who, set, who, who read the text, Beth Page, Beth Page. They have a clip of MacArthur, John MacArthur preaching multiple times in this text and saying it differently every time. 
So I'm comforted. Bethpage. It's the only time I have to say it in the sermon. They travel through there by or over the Mount of Olives. And it's from there that Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead to find a donkey and a colt to bring back to him so that he could mount the colt and enter the gate of Jerusalem riding on its back, which is exactly what the disciples do and what Jesus does when they return to him at the Mount of Olives. The disciples lay their cloaks on the colt along the path upon which Jesus would tread sitting on the colt. Now, you want to rush toward the significance already. Don't, don't do that. We're just telling the story right now. Absorb the details. We'll get to the significance in a moment. Jesus takes his place on the colt. In the narrative, the details that we so commonly associate with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, in the narrative, they begin long before he enters the city. They actually begin as Jesus descends the Mount of Olives on a donkey. Verses 36 and 37 say, As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, here are a few details that the other gospel writers fill in. Most of it comes from John. When John says that the multitude of people praising Jesus and spreading palm branches along the path from the Mount of Olives and into Jerusalem was the same crowd that had come to Jerusalem to purify themselves in preparation for the Passover. And this crowd went out to meet Jesus at the Mount of Olives when they heard that he was on his way because the other crowd who was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead had continued to bear witness of that miracle ever since Jesus did it. So word had spread of the one who could open the eyes of the blind and even raise the dead, and people go out to greet him. John also adds the detail that Jesus' own disciples um, the twelve and probably some others, quote, did not understand what was going on in the moment until after the resurrection, if not the ascension. John twelve sixteen. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So, in the moment... We have Jesus seated on a colt, descending the Mount of Olives, being praised by people who had seen his works, his path to Jerusalem carpeted by their own cloaks, his praise pouring forth from their lips. But if we continue to read in Luke 19 beyond our text, we have Jesus weeping openly even while he's being praised. These are not happy and humble tears for the recognition that he's finally about to receive. These are tears of grief because Jesus knows that the crowd's praise is completely empty. These same voices who are singing his praise in the moment and ready to anoint him king will be the same ones crying out, crucify him, crucify him, just a few days later. 
Jesus also knows that the days are coming when the city itself will be barricaded and surrounded and invaded and destroyed the city and the people, not one stone upon another because they did not truly know or believe the significance of this very moment in their midst. So for the second time in a few short days, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is overcome with the painful emotion of the moment. Once at the reality of death and the grief people feel when they lose someone they love and once at the awareness of empty praise and future judgment. But the crowds are oblivious. While Jesus weeps, they continue to cry out praise and march before him and behind him. And Matthew adds that by the time he actually enters the city of Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd say, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And I love the detail that Luke includes, that when the Pharisees demand, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, Jesus responds, I tell you that if these were silent, how does our text end? The very stones would cry out, Why? Why? Because all of creation, including stones, is groaning under the crushing weight of sin and the pervasive effects of the fall, waiting eagerly for redemption and the setting of all things right. And if the people can't see that the Redeemer himself is riding into Jerusalem, the stones see it. And they'll praise it. And the Pharisees look at one another and they say, the world has gone after this man. And, and here is where you have to compare the Gospels pretty carefully. Because Matthew and Luke seem to suggest that Jesus went immediately into the temple and overturns the tables and drives out those buying and selling. But Mark clarifies that that happens the following day. This first day, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He looks around. And he returns to Bethany with the twelve, which he proceeded to do at the end of every day until his arrest. So that's the story. Now, what's the significance? What do I mean here? Here's, here's, here's what I mean. The text itself provokes questions that send us throughout the scriptures for answers. And it's in those questions and their answers that we begin to connect the dots and see the greater significance of the triumphal entry. And it's there that we find the most natural and helpful applications. So as I rehearsed the story over the last few minutes, you probably asked a few questions along the way, didn't you? And you probably took a few things for granted along the way that you shouldn't have. Now, I'm going to be selective this morning in the questions that I ask and seek to answer, partly because I'm trying to accomplish something specific and partly because I only have a very small window to speak to you this morning. There are other questions that we won't ask or attempt to answer, but hopefully you can. In your own time, your own study, hopefully you can and hopefully you will. So here, here's my list as I think through the narrative. I think these are the ones that are most natural and most pressing that we shouldn't take for granted. Why the donkey and the colt? What do I mean by that? As I said before, Je Jesus was in the prime of his life and strength. 
Jesus did not need a prop to make it the remaining mile or so from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. So why the donkey and the colt? Related, why the Mount of Olives? He stopped there. It's, it's kind of along the way. But he stops there, and he sends two disciples ahead, and apparently he stayed there until they returned with the donkey and the colt because they bring the donkey and the colt to him, and the next thing we see is Jesus riding down the Mount of Olives on the colt. So why? What's the significance of the Mount of Olives? Next, why the palm branches and the cloaks? Meaning, why that treatment? It's royal treatment. Related? Why the praise? It wasn't just palm branches and cloaks. This was praise fit for a king and a savior. And I'm not forcing that into the text to prove a point. The people themselves say, Hosanna to the son of David. It means, son of David, save us. And then my last question. Why does it turn so quickly and end so badly for Jesus? Palm Sunday to Good Friday is the coronation to the cross. One day, they want to install him on the throne. A few days later, they'd rather have Barabbas back among them than Jesus. And my point with this is none of these things make sense if there's not deeper significance going on at all fronts. So how do we even begin to answer our questions in a way that's not imposing on the text something that we want it to say? Well, the scripture writers, under the inspiration of the Spirit, give us the direction that we need to answer our questions. In other words, Matthew and John show us the way most clearly. Because just as we're beginning to ask our most specific questions, they tell us that what is unfolding is the fulfillment of what was spoken earlier by the prophets. Fear not, John says, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. It's a quotation from Zechariah 9.9. Matthew includes a snippet from Isaiah 61 in his recollection. He says, say to the daughter of Zion. Both Old Old Testament texts being fulfilled here prophesy the same thing. This long-awaited, long-anticipated day, the coming of Israel's eschatological, end-time king into the world to save them, to truly save them once and for all. And the primary text at play here is just so, so graphic. Zechariah 9 pictures the Lord himself in flaming judgment, working his way down the coast from the north in Damascus, in Syria, through Hamath, through the impregnable Tyre and Zidon, striking down their power and stripping them of possessions and devouring them with fire and striking fear in Ashkelon because they know that they're next in this warrior's path. Along with Gaza and Ekron and Ashdod and Philistia, judging these oppressors of his people, but graciously saving a remnant from each of them along the way. It's a wonderful passage. 
and he does this until he arrives at his house in Jerusalem, and he sets himself there as a guard so that no oppressor shall ever march against his people again. That's Zechariah 9, 1 through 8, and the quotation here is from verse 9. It's the context that Zechariah proclaims to the recently returned exiles of his day. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? So clearly, the people of Jesus' day still occupied and oppressed by another nation and under the rule of a foreign king were associating him with the king that Zechariah prophesies who will plunder and deliver and save and restore joy and peace to the land. Isaiah 61 speaks similarly, only Isaiah personifies salvation itself in the king. Listen, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes and behold his, whose Salvation personified. The king, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they, meaning the people whom he came to save, shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Now, neither Matthew nor John quotes the entire context of either of those prophecies that I just rehearsed, and, and that was intentional. Because what the people of Jesus' day were so quick to latch onto, in other words, his miracles, the authority with which he spoke, they also failed to see in those texts that the salvation that their king came to accomplish on their behalf was first and foremost spiritual and supernatural in his first advent by laying down his life to the death. It was first and foremost that in his first advent before it was physical, which it will be in his second. But the connections run even deeper than this mere association with Zechariah 9. The people call him son of David. Now, where does that come from? Genealogically, Jesus was a descendant of David both from his mother's line and from his earthly adopted father's line. You can read both genealogies in Matthew and Luke. But son of David is, is more than that. You know that. Son of David is kingly. It's covenantal. At a time when the throne of David was importantly vacant. So let me take us back to 2 Samuel 7, when David's on the throne and God has given him rest from his enemies and David has it in his heart to build the temple. And the Lord rehearses his promises to his people since his covenant with Abraham and rehearses his faithfulness to lead them this far in fulfillment of those promises. But it would be his son, his son, who would build a house for the glory of God's name. The son of David would do this. And God would be to him a father and he would be to him a son. And God seals the promises in a covenant with David right here. He would establish the throne of David's son forever. And brothers and sisters, in the narrative, 
when David's health is deteriorating and Adonijah, his son, proclaims himself king, what does David do to Solomon to make clear to the people the son of his own choosing who would be his heir? Listen to 1 Kings 1.32. David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule. Bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet say, uh, There anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. So, how does the story unfold? Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, went down and had Solomon ride on David's mule and brought him to Gehan. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on the pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. And they would do the same later on for Jehu, the king of Israel, whom God instructed Elijah, then Elisha, then one of the prophets in Elisha's day, to anoint as king to strike down the wicked house of Ahab, who oppressed his people from within the kingdom and led them even further away from God into idolatry. And the people welcomed Jehu, their warrior king. Listen, this is a quote. In haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and they proclaimed, Jehu is king. Brothers and sisters, the people of Jesus' day understood the symbolism of what was happening in their midst, didn't they? But it runs even deeper. Because long before David, Jacob himself prophesied in his blessing to his son Judah, not only that the kings of Israel would come from his tribe, but he pictures the coming king. Kings would come, the king, however. The one, who, the one to whom tribute would come and the obedience of the nations would come. He would come to them, how? Mounted on a donkey. That's Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Let me just read it. Um, when Israel, not 48, uh, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club, cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And he washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Even before that, one more step back. The Lord himself told Abraham not only that he would have a son who would become a great people, who would bless the nations, but that kings would come from him. This is Genesis 17. And 
Genesis 49 narrows the kings down to a tribe, but narrows the focus even more to one king who would come on a donkey and bring to fulfillment the blessings on the nations in the promise given to Abraham. And the Davidic covenant narrows it even further to one family from all the families of the tribe of Judah, but then gives them this brief and imperfect shadow of who he would be in Solomon, the son of David, that preceded and prefigured the true and lasting substance of the shadow, whom Zechariah prophesies concerning the righteous king who would come to his people riding on a donkey, not only bringing salvation with him, but being salvation in the flesh. And here he was. And they welcomed him in the same installment-type ways that they welcomed their kings in the past. And with praise for what they anticipated him doing. And it's happening at the Mount of Olives because this is where Zechariah says it was all going to unfold at the end of his book in chapter 14. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, and his people will flee there for salvation, and living water will flow out of Jerusalem, and the Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day the Lord will be one, and his name one, and even though much of that prophecy awaits the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, the symbolism and the significance of Jesus sending forth for the donkey and the colt, waiting at the Mount of Olives, mounting the colt there and riding down the Mount of Olives is communicating something that the people of his day knew exactly what was he, he was communicating. He is the king. And for a moment, they hailed him as such. They shouted, Hosanna, Lord, save us, but they didn't see that he came first to answer their cries in a way that they didn't anticipate spiritually before he would come again to save them physically and eternally. He came the first time not to judge the world and install himself on his rightful throne and reign over a physical people, but to save the world by laying down his own life, not on a throne, but on a cross, to be judged in the place of his people for their sins against God, to be the recipient of the wrath of God as a lamb led to the slaughter before he would come again, not on a donkey, but on a war horse in Revelation 19 with a crown on his head and eyes as a flame of fire and a sharp sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations and he'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, which is exactly what Zechariah says he will do on that day with King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his thighs and his throne of judgment established thereafter and the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to a new heavens and a new earth Jesus forever to dwell among us and be our God and we forever to be with him as his people. No more tears, brothers and sisters. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more sin, no more curse. Just him, just him and all good things that are true and right and necessary for our joy in him eternally thereafter. The people wanted what comes later without wanting what comes before or first. In other words, they wanted the physical benefits of their salvation, most of which are yet future without having interest or even awareness or concern 
for their more urgent spiritual salvation, meaning regeneration from an unbelieving heart to life and faith, justification by faith and the atoning death of Christ for their sins, forgiveness for their offenses against a holy God, sanctification by the indwelling spirit in which the believer is transformed day by day from the inside out, new desires, new motives, new loves, holiness, faithfulness, perseverance through suffering, serving and suffering with him and for him before reigning with him, which is why their praise is so quickly exposed as empty and which is also why it so quickly turns to a unified, horrific, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted Jesus without their own hearts being changed in the process. He's not the one. Brothers and sisters, this is the epitome of unbelief. Betray him. Conspire against him. Stage a series of trials against him and pay people off to lie against him. Beat him, strip him, mock him, shame him. Crucify him. Anything but that kind of king. Because, as Ananias unknowingly prophesied, it is better that one man die for the people not that the whole nation perish. And perish he did. Just like Zechariah said he would. Just like Genesis 3.15 says, the seed of the woman would be bruised in his heel on the path to crushing the head of the serpent to lift the curse and make all things right. The same king who would come to his people mounted on a donkey would be the shepherd who was smitten in Zechariah 12, three chapters after Zechariah 9. But it would be that through that smiting that a fountain, Scripture says, a fountain of cleansing from sin and uncleanness would be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all who call upon his name. Zechariah says, they'll call on my name, the one that they struck and pierced, and I'll answer them and I'll say, they're my people, and they'll say, he's my God. So, you heard the story. You've hopefully started to see some of the deeper significance. What are the applications? Um, among the endless applications, hopefully you've already made in your own life. Let me just uh, approach it this way. Which, which group of people in the story do you identify with? I narrowed down three of them. You could probably pick more and say it even better in some ways. Three of them. Are you among the Pharisees and the chief priests? Threatened by what Jesus' influence might do to your own influence and sovereignty over your own life? You like church, but you wish it'd be more about you, more about us than about him, less about him that might tarnish your reputation? If so, text is calling you to repent or you will perish. It's no contest. He came to save and to open a fountain of grace and mercy for all who believe from all nations, as Zechariah says, but he will come again to vanquish his foes, 
and not even the nations united as one against him will be able to withstand a single word that sounds from the sharp sword of his mouth in the day of his return. So, sir, ma'am, repent and believe or you will perish eternally. Second, are you among the crowds, the multitudes, who want what Jesus offers but not at the cost? Eat his flesh. This is when the clouds dissipated, when Jesus started to say things like, eat my flesh, drink my blood, love God, love your neighbor, persevere through suffering. Does that offend you? Like it offended them? Eat his flesh, drink his blood. Life's not going to get better for you just because you believe it make it more difficult but persevere? Is that not what you asked for? Not what you wanted? Does it offend you? It offended them. It wasn't what they wanted in a Savior. They expected to be chosen for what they could bring to the table, bring to him. In the moment, it was verbal, demonstrable allegiance. I'll carpet your path with my cloak, and I'll hail you as king as long as. Do you have an as, as long as? Do you have a, an if to that statement? Jesus says, if so, you cannot be my disciple. Count the cost. Count the cost. All who live Godly by faith in Jesus will suffer persecution, but all who suffer and persevere will reign with him when he returns and will do so eternally. So count the cost and be convinced by a work of the Spirit in your heart that the greatest cost for the saving of your soul has already been paid by the King himself, the suffering servant. And anything that we suffer because we are in him is a light, momentary affliction that will give way to a far greater glory when he returns. So count the cost, and by a miracle of God's grace in your heart, even now, take up your cross and follow him. Finally, are you among his disciples who have counted the cost but admit that the Christian life is hard and the significance of what seems like these minor details is just confusing. If this is you, brother, sister, you're in good company. Not only with the 12 or the 11, if we exclude Judas, but you're in company with the rest of his people throughout church history, including everybody seated around you, if they were honest. The Christian life is hard. Zechariah said it'd be. Jesus said it even clearer. We still live under the curse. We still live in bodies of flesh, subject to temptation and deterioration and death. We still have a relentless enemy who knows our weaknesses and stalks us like a lion to devour our faith and our hope and our usefulness. But the Christian hope in life and death, brother, sister, is that there will be a resurrection because Palm Sunday gives way to Good Friday, which gives way to Easter Sunday. There will be a resurrection from the dead and the curse will be lifted and these bodies of flesh will be freed and glorified and our enemy will be banished forever and because Easter Sunday was followed by Pentecost, 
when the Spirit descended to remain and indwell and unite the people of God into one body in Christ that gather all over the world in local manifestations of that one body to pray and to read the Word and to hear the Word preached and to witness baptisms and to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and engage actively by faith in the means of grace that He Himself attends and through which He Himself sanctifies and keeps His people. Brothers and sisters, the call to you is to press on. Press on. Hold fast and do it together. It's the only way you'll make it. Because it's by design. He's bound himself covenantally to finish the work that he's begun in you. Which ought to be the greatest comfort and encouragement that you could receive in your Christian life this morning. He's bound himself to you covenantally and sealed it with his blood that he will finish the work that he's begun in you, and he will continue that work in you as you continue in this together with the people of God in a local body and under the authority of the word and under the leadership of God given pastors and teachers. He who calls you is faithful, brothers and sisters, the promises he will Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for this time in Luke 19 and elsewhere. Thank you that the triumphal entry has much meaning and significance that hopefully we've begun to scratch the surface on this morning. Oh, Father, I pray to speak by your Spirit to people where they're at right now. Pharisees and chief priests, the multitudes just still don't know if they want it at this cost, and the disciples. Lord, who admit that life is hard, this is a struggle, but you bound yourself to us and you've bound us to a body together so that we'll make it and the Spirit is here using the means of grace to do what he promised to do and he will do it to the end. May we leave with that blessed assurance. In Jesus' name.